you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. All right, guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of What Went Wrong. I'm Chris Winterbauer here with Lizzie Bassett, who I'm watching just like (laughs) munch down on just way too big a bite of spinach and I don't know what else. uh, Tomatoes. And you're you're drinking LaCroix when you promised me you wouldn't drink fizzy drinks while we record anymore because they make you burp. Oh, yeah. It's uh, the only thing I had. So many betrayals. <laughs> and and I don't think you rewatched the movie for this week. So, Lizzie, what's going on? And you're like, I know you have a full-time job, but That is also accurate. <laughs> I was busy and I'm tired. And yeah. I have seen this movie approximately 20 times. I've seen this movie so many times. And here's the question to get out of the way right at the top. The movie in question is Gladiator and Lizzie. Did your high school world history teacher spend three weeks screening this movie in 20 to 35 minute chunks to teach you the intricacies of Roman life? Honestly, no. And I feel ripped off about that. Um, Instead, I watched this movie more times than I can count with my mom who... uh, loves this movie and yes. loved Russell Crowe. Oh, like, yes. Loved Russell Crowe. As many women did and do. <laughs> uh, today, we are entering the ring with Ridley Scott's somewhat historical epic, Gladiator, co-produced and distributed by DreamWorks Pictures and Universal. The film stars, as Lizzie mentioned, Russell Crowe, Joaquin Fighting Phoenix. around the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, Connie Nielsen, Jamon Hunsu. Richard Harris, and in his final film role, Oliver Reed as mm-hmm. Proximo. So for those of you who don't know, can't remember, or uh, have not seen the film, the film follows Russell Crowe's Maximus Decimus Meridius, Hell who yeah. is a decorated <laughs> Roman general tasked by Richard Harris's Marcus Aurelius, who was a real person, with transitioning Rome from a monarchy back to a republic upon his death, something he didn't actually want in real life. Aurelius's son, Commodus, played by the scene-stealing Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Not loving this plan that denies him his, quote, rightful place on the throne, murders his father and orders Maximus and his family to be executed. We then follow 
Maximus as he embarks on a quest for vengeance through the gladiatorial rings of ancient Rome. To be clear, he does execute Maximus's family. Yes. And then Maximus manages to find out and, uh, yeah, get, like, sold into slavery? I guess gets... I should have watched this. <laughs> <laughs> the film was very well received critically. Currently holds 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. Actually a little lower than I thought it would uh, be at. It won five mm-hmm. Academy Awards. It played especially well at the box office. However, it was far from a surefire success. As we'll learn, a disgruntled star, an incomplete script, and a death during production all threatened to derail this now action classic. So, let's let the bloodshed begin! Ow! Ow, stop! (laughs) All right. So Gladiator's (laughs) Road to the Big Screen begins with writer David Franzoni. Franzoni is a screenwriter who came up in the industry in the mid-1980s, and after some early success, he found himself attached to a bunch of projects that had a lot of great promise, but never went anywhere. So an Al Capone biopic that he co-wrote with John Milius of Apocalypse Mm. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, a Harvey Milk biopic that was supposed to be directed by Oliver Stone, it never went, and a reboot of the House of Cards BBC miniseries that Michael Mann was supposed to direct, which of course was later done by David Fincher. All of these projects fizzled out, went into development hell, they never got produced. But Franzoni's work didn't go unnoticed. Steven Spielberg, impressed by a George Washington biopic script that Franzoni had written that's still unproduced and has had like 30 directors attached to it, hired the scribe to adapt uh, what historical film of Steven Spielberg's from the 90s? Oh, Amadeus? Uh, Wait. Almost. Oh, Amistad. 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 Amistad is what I meant. Uh, (laughs) Amistad, I got it right. Uh, The (laughs) project snagged him a high-profile three-picture deal with DreamWorks, and he won an Academy Award for screenwriting. So Franzoni, during his youth, had taken a motorcycle trip around the world. He was fascinated by the Roman Colosseums, and while he was staying in a yurt in Baghdad, he met an Australian woman who gave him the book Those About to Die... By Daniel P. Mannix, which was written in the late 50s. The story followed the Roman gladiatorial games, and Franzoni was hooked. 30 years later, after the success of Amistad, he brings the idea for a film set in this gladiatorial world to DreamWorks. They love it. They decide, great, let's go make this movie. So he works with producers Douglas Wick and Walter Parks. Walter Parks was the head of DreamWorks, and they put together a pitch. It's like a rough story, visual aids, I actually read another account that said that this pitch was included two full drafts of the script. It's unclear. The timeline is a little murky here. But the point being, the most important part of this pitch was a painting from 1872 by Jean-Léon Jérôme called, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Police Verso. It means thumbs down. And if you saw the painting, you'd think it was out of the movie Gladiator. It's basically, if you remember in the film, there's a character who has, like, a trident tuna fork that, like, they throw a net on one of the guys and then they stab him with the tuna fork. And it's basically that character, like, that armor, looking up at the emperor as he's holding his thumb out down, signaling you should kill Kill. your opponent. And it's really beautiful, light and shadow coliseum. It's a very cinematic painting. So the team decides they're going to take the pitch to Ridley Scott. 
And it's unclear whether or not they approached any other directors before this, but they took it to Ridley Scott. And as they're kind of walking him through the pitch and he seems a little distracted, he keeps looking over at the Jerome painting that's like sitting behind some other pieces. So Walter Parks just finally says, hey, do you want to look at this? And he shows him this Jerome painting and Ridley just looks at it for a few minutes. And then before hearing the rest of the pitch or what the story's even about, he just says, I'll do it. And Parks goes, hang on, you don't know what the story's about. And Ridley just dismisses. And he's like, we can figure out the script. I don't care. I'll do it. And so he was clearly <laughs> just so fascinated with this gl- world of gladiators and the, the visual storytelling potential that he was willing to jump onto this project without really knowing what the story was about and without reading I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. So briefly, let's touch on who Ridley Scott is. At this point in time, Ridley Scott was a blockbuster director who is somewhat in need of a comeback. So he was born in Northeast England in the late 1930s in a military family. He came up during the war. They often moved. His father was an officer with the Royal Engineers. And he always had an incredible talent for the arts. So Ridley Scott is a very talented illustrator, much like James Cameron. And you can see his storyboards and visual drafts for a lot of his films. If you look online, he's incredibly gifted. He went to the Royal College of Art in London, and in the early 1960s, he started working for BBC, initially as a set designer. So it makes sense. He comes from this like mm. visual world. In 1965, he started directing television. He then, much like David Fincher, would later do, founded Ridley Scott Associates. It's a commercial production company. It's still thriving today, and he begins directing commercials in the 1960s and 1968. And so this is, he's 31 at this point. He's older than a lot of these other directors that we've talked about who come up in their 20s. So he has this incredible run, and it culminates with helping Chanel Number no. 5 re- revitalize its image in the 1970s and kind of like regain its place as like a non-passé sort of high class. And he kind of was one of the guys that invented the more modern perfum- perfume commercial, which now First is of all, like insane. Yeah, hate perfume commercials. Yeah. They just automatically make no sense. That's Correct. the first rule. Second thing, Chanel Number no. 5 does smell like an old lady's bathroom. It does, that I want to go to. So um, (laughs) now, like I mentioned, unlike a lot of the directors we've covered, Scott didn't actually direct his first feature film until he was 40 years old. It was The Duelist, starring Harvey Cattell and Keith Carradine. It was a pretty small film, period piece, and it debuted at Cannes in uh, 1977 or 78, and it won some awards, like Best Debut Feature, And then he, of course, followed up The Duelist with what would become his most famous film, Lizzie. Uh, uh, Alien. Alien. 1979's Alien, which changed the trajectory of science fiction. It earns over $100 million at the box office. All of a sudden, Ridley Scott, 42 years old, is a directorial force to be reckoned with. So that's his second movie? I didn't realize that. Second movie. And then do you know what his third movie is? Is it Thelma and Louise? It's Blade Runner. No. Oh, wow. Yeah. So his 1980s path is a little bit checkered. Like the high points are Blade Runner. And he did the Apple Macintosh commercial, the 1984 one with the woman running through and she throws the hammer at the screen and shatters it. So he directed that as well. Um, And then he also directed Legend with Tom Cruise, which no one has seen. And it's totally wacky. Yeah, exactly. No one watched it. And then in 1991... He had his like huge commercial breakthrough bona fide hit with Thelma and Luis. 
which, which is, is great. Great. It's a box office smash. Critical darling. He gets an Oscar nomination for directing. The movie wins for screenwriting. And he's got all this momentum and success. And he parlays it into the independently financed, incredibly expensive 1492 Conquest of Paradise, starring Gerard Depardieu as Christopher Columbus. And what? Yes. <laughs> no one has seen this movie. Uh, it was a failure oh, no. critically and commercially. And he didn't release another film for four years following 1492, eventually returning to the screen with White Squall, which flopped the Jeff Bridges, like Boys on a Boat movie, and G.I. Jane with Demi Moore, which did okay at the box office, but still lost money. Fun fact, uh, in my kindergarten, there was a kid who allegedly had a cameo in G.I. Jane, and it was the closest to Hollywood that I had come at that time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Oh, how the turntables. So in the (laughs) 1990s, which had started off at such a high point for Scott with Elma and Louise, it turns out to be this kind of down period in his career. And so whether or not Scott feels this pressure uh, to, you know, of Gladiator needing to be a hit, he kind of does need it to be a hit. It's been now almost nine years since his last big movie. And so what we can say is that no matter how the movie would turn out, it would be an inflection point the first film under his name to be released in the new millennium and furthermore he's tackling a genre that's been dead in hollywood for 30 plus years roman epics are considered totally risky moves spartacus and ben-hur like back in the 50s and 60s had lit up the box office but there had been no such successes in recent years People were worried it was going to be a, quote, toga party, is what they called it. Like, kind of out of shade ap- actors in loincloths, uh, women yeah, suckling grapes. Because, right. That had kind of become a genre for a while there, where they really cranked out a bunch of really bad ones. Yeah. So, like, Cleopatra in 63 right. was a big flop. And then, ironically... The Fall of the Roman Empire was the 1964 film that lost a ton of $10 million and... Actually, the entire plot of Gladiator is a ripoff of the fall of the Roman Empire. And so literally, like, it's just a beat for beat. It's the same story. So they basically just took that movie and they're like, it didn't work then, but maybe it'll work now. So all of this is going to depend on a script, as we know, in these processes. And unfortunately, it turns out the script is a bit of a disaster for Gladiator. So... Franzoni turned in his first draft sometime in April of 1998, and the story was almost completely different in detail than what they ended up shooting. So it followed Narcissus, who was a real historical figure. He was a wrestler of the gladiatorial games who eventually strangled real-life Emperor Commodus to death in his bathtub. Uh, Cool. Yeah, the broad strokes of the story are similar, but apparently, like, the dialogue was extremely dense. The story was less propulsive. It was much more ambiguous. We never witnessed Commodus murder, murder his father. Um, there was like some ridiculous touches that actually were historically accurate. Like Narcissus finds himself sponsored by the Golden Pompeii Olive Oil Company, much like a modern day athlete. Uh, and this runner, in, yeah, which was a real thing apparently back in the gladiatorial games. Uh, they would okay. get sponsorships from local companies, and they actually in the in the third act of the film, uh, the slogan for Golden Pompeii Olive Oil becomes. Narcissus would kill for a taste of golden Pompeii olive oil, <laughs> which was a real part of the script. Um, oh, 
no. So then in the third act of the film of the original screenplay, Commodus burns his sister Lucilla, played by Connie Nielsen, alive inside a brass bull, along with the other senators that betrayed him. He then replaces these senators with chimpanzees and purple togas. And then uh... in the end, Narcissus, after uh, it's revealed that his family is actually still alive and so it's like that kind of classic like actually they've been alive this whole time and then after he kills Commodus he rides off with his family into the sunset roll credits nope Ridley Scott had a similar reaction and uh, (laughs) he hired John Logan who'd written Any Given Sunday and Bats if you haven't seen it uh, more importantly sure haven't I have three times a good horror movie about bats uh (laughs) Logan does a rewrite and six months later and I think this is roughly around October of 1998 he turns in a a new draft so he has changed a number of things the best decision that he makes is Maximus's wife and child are killed off 100% in the first act giving him the full revenge motivation that he needs to take him to the end of the story Uh, He added in kind of the North Africa gladiator training sequence that then happens before he gets shipped off to the Colosseum. Which is also good. And basically, it seems like it's pretty close to the end product structurally until you get to the third act. And so the third act of the film was much bigger. Maximus escapes via the sewers. He was still called called Narcissus in this draft, but I'll refer to him as Maximus. He He brings the army back to Rome has a big battle with Commodus's Praetorian Guard. He then chases Commodus into the bowels of the Colosseum, kills him underneath the Colosseum after Commodus reveals that he killed his sister, Lucilla. And then he rides that elevator up to the base of the Colosseum, like in the end of the current film. They then ride this ancient elevator that you see in the final film up to the center of the Colosseum. The Roman audience is waiting. The emperor's dead on the platform. They're all excited. Maximus then adopts Lucius, uh, who's Connie Nielsen's son, played by Spencer Treat Clark in the film. And they go and live on a farm. End of movie. Happily ever after. It's a lot closer to the final version. So some sort of script in hand. Ridley Scott and company need to find their cast. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I've attempted to reconstruct the timeline leading into production 
don't hold me to this exactly. But assuming that <laughs> Logan turned his draft of the script in sometime around October 1998, and assuming that production began in January 1999, which we do know, and that construction of a lot of these sets took many months, and that the actors were hired many months in advance, I think we can safely assume that Scott and the producers were actually sending out John Franzoni's script, the first yeah, one I described to you, had to, be. to the cast in trying to draw them to the film. Right. So... I wasn't able to find a completely verified list of who Scott initially wanted for Maximus. However, various sources claim that Mel Gibson was first offered the role. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) And uh, he turned it down. He has since said that he felt he was too old for the part. He was 43. He was almost 10 years older than Russell Crowe. He would also just done Braveheart. And he, he actually went on to take the role, the lead in Roland Emmerich's The Patriot, which shot almost Mm. the same time. Yeah. Antonio Banderas was also strongly considered. And I don't know if you remember, in the in the movie, the character is Spanish. He's called the yeah. Spaniard throughout the entire film. Yes, which is strange when you look Russell Crowe in the face. Well, yeah, we'll get there. So <laughs> in the end, uh, Ridley Scott, though, wanted actually a lesser known actor. And so he reached out to Russell Crowe, the ruggedly handsome, now infamously combustible, New Zealand-born actor. I will say this. I forever will love Russell Crowe, no matter how many phones he throws at hotel employees. So Russell Crowe at this point was not the Russell Crowe we know today. Yeah, he was in his mid-30s and coming off of the critically acclaimed L.A. Confidential, which if you haven't seen it, like... It's so good. It's one of the best movies ever made. Go watch it. Crow uh, grew up in New Zealand and then Australia. He'd been exposed to the film industry through his parents. They worked as set caterers. And he'd kind of like worked consistently through the 90s. First an Australian film uh, with Proof and Romper Stomper. And I've seen Romper Mm -hmm. Stomper and it's definitely worth watching. So at this point in time, Crow is working on The Insider. Michael Mann's Mm, story about a tobacco industry whistleblower. The character that he plays, real life, I think Wigan's the guy's last name, was actually 20 years older than Crow. He was in his 50s. So mm-hmm. he had, was wearing a wig and he also weighed a lot more. So Crow had put on 50 pounds for the role. And so Crow gets sent the script for Gladiator and initially he didn't even want to read it. He was like, uh, what am I going to do, play Gladiator? <laughs> then Michael Mann was like, listen, Ridley Scott's directing this. You should read this script. And so he's like, all right. And then he reads Gladiator and he hated it. He really was honest. He was just like, this script is not very good. The character's underwritten. Uh, I'm not going to do it. So he passes. And so then producer Walter Parks, probably thinking like, fuck, we can't have like three, two or three actors pass on this. You know, it's going right. to lose steam. Calls him and he gives him a simple pitch. It's 184 AD. You're a Roman general. You're going to be directed by Ridley Scott. The budget's a hundred million dollars, and so Jesus. off of that, off of that pitch, Crow agrees to talk to Ridley about the part. And after Ridley pitched him on his vision, and by this point, Ridley Scott's been working months in advance with a storyboard artist, so he has visualized a lot of the movie. And once Crow can see it, it sounds like he's down to do the project. And I just would love to have seen this meeting if it did happen in person, because at this point in time, Russell Crow was. 511 and a half, 240 pounds, and he had a shaved head because he'd shaved his head bald so he could get the wig on faster. So can you imagine this like fat, bald Russell Crowe coming in <laughs> being like, yeah, I could be a gladiator. <laughs> As Ridley Scott's like, oh my God, do we have the right guy? 
Ridley Scott rounds out his cast with a number of British heavyweights, including, of course, Richard Harris as Marcus mm-hmm. Aurelius, Derek Jacobi as Senator Gracchus, and then most importantly for our story, Oliver Reed as Proximo. Jude Law screen tested for the role of Commodus. Ooh, that might have been really good. I think he could have been excellent. I think Joaquin Phoenix is great. I'm glad it was he him. Is great. But I think I think Jude Law is great, and I think he's would be great as a villain. Like it could be My really cool. My favorite Jude Law is wormy villainous Jude yes. Law. It's yeah. like the talented Mr. Ripley yes. and as Dickie Greenleaf so good. is I think one of the best performances. Which came out this same year. And so okay, he was well, actually he chose this over Gladiator. I don't think he, made he the right call. I don't think he chose it. I think they they probably would have worked it out, but Ridley Scott insisted that Joaquin Phoenix was the one and only choice for Commodus. So it sounds mm-hmm. like DreamWorks, maybe Spielberg, thought that Jude Law could be good and Ridley Scott. And I'm guessing it might have been Spielberg because Spielberg then almost immediately went to work with Jude Law on AI, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. So there was one actress who lobbied hard for the role of Lucilla that went to Connie Nielsen eventually, but did not win over director Ridley Scott. And I I bet you with a million guesses, you could never guess this actress. But just give me like... Give me a clue. She's Hispanic. Uh, American? Yes. The, I'm going to guess something I know it's wrong. No, go it's for Jennifer it. Jennifer Lopez. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, who's New Yorkan, she lobbied hard for the role of Lucilla. And she was... I'm sorry, that only wouldn't work because I would expect Jennifer Lopez to just beat the ever-living crap out of Yes, Phoenix. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but despite securing a meeting with Ridley Scott, uh, she quickly realized he wasn't going to select her. And the role, of course, went to Danish actress Connie Nielsen, who you can see in the new Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, she's great. She's great. So cast in place, the production plan for the film was surprisingly straightforward. The movie was broken up entirely by location. So Act Mm -hmm. 1 is set in Germania, which they were going to shoot in the Bourne Woods of England. They'd then relocate to Morocco for a month to shoot all of the scenes of the desert. North Africa. North Africa stuff. And then the rest of the film is takes place in Rome, where they're going to shoot in Malta. The plan is to actually shoot the script linearly, which is extremely rare. So for those of you who are unaware, when you're filming a project, you're shooting out of order. You're yeah. sh- you're shooting solely to minimize the number of location changes and costume changes. You're always trying to minimize change because that eats up time and time costs money when you're on set. So when you watch, you know, a movie like The Departed, for example, and you have an initial, you know, meetup point between Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg early in the film at, uh, you know, the the police station, they're going to film that back to back with the final meetup, you know, that they do later in the film in that same location. Correct. Yeah, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. But the point being, it's rare that you get a film that you can shoot in linear order. Another example is, um, I believe, Alejandro Iñárritu shot The Revenant roughly in script order so production would last just over four months from january through may of 1989 that's not the other reason to shoot linearly is that all of the big set pieces take place in the back half of the film rome is the most extensive piece of construction so let's shoot all the lower construction cost stuff up front and give our production time team more time to finish these sets and the sets were enormous in morocco 
that arena that they fight in initially that mm-hmm. fits 3,000 people was built to scale out of mud bricks using like local techniques and processes to make what? it yep, to make it genuine. I assumed that was like digitally. Nope. Oh, wow. Nope, that was real. And they also recreated basically 50% of the Colosseum in yeah, one direction at 52 feet high or one third of its actual height of 157 feet. And then, uh, and these replicas cost well over a million dollars each, and they took months to complete. Not only, though, was Ridley Scott trying to buy time for his production design team, he was trying to buy time for the script as well, which just was not getting there. So two weeks out from production, they brought on a third screenwriter to the project. So John Franzoni, then uh, John Logan, and now British screenwriter... William Nicholson is brought on mostly just to rework Maximus's character because Russell Crowe is really pissed off that his character has not been fixed until this point. And I think with good reason. He's basically like... Well, if he signed on with the caveat that it would be fixed and yeah. it's not, then yeah. So Nicholson is the one who added the idea of Maximus ultimately wanting to rejoin his family in the afterlife, which gave mm-hmm. him a softer, more sensitive side to play. They also yeah. worked in a lot of Crow's background with farming into the character. Hmm. And they made him this like, oh, he's a soldier in his profession, but he's a farmer at heart. And they did this kind of like rural versus city divide. And he strengthened Maximus's friendship with Juba, D- Jimon Hunsu's character, which initially was pretty surface level. And they wanted it to be more of a strong emotional arc to the film. So... Production begins in January of 1999, as I mentioned in the Bourne Woods of England. Scott has learned that the Forestry Commission has planned on executing a swath of deforestation that year in that area, so he convinced them to allow him to deforest it for the movie. So the opening, like, dramatic war scenes, Ridley Scott just blew the forest up because they were going to take all those trees down (laughs) anyway. Uh, Ridley Scott... So that's why there's just, like, stumps everywhere. There's just some, the Yeah, shots. that's exactly right. Yeah, he was like, we're just going to cut it down for you. Um, so Ridley Scott had just seen Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And he had seen the staging of D-Day and was like, this is the greatest battle sequence anyone's ever made. And so a lot of what he does in the sequence is, is an homage to Steven Spielberg's cinematography and staging in the D-Day scene. If you watch them back-to-back, you can see similarities. Yeah. Uh, so Scott's cinematographer was John Matheson, a British cinematographer. He and Ridley Scott used up to seven cameras at a time to capture what they need. And changing lighting was constantly a problem, but they were shooting with all these cameras, and Ridley Scott, smoking a cigar, was like, we're going to push through all of these who cares about continuity errors? And if you go watch the movie, it's like during these... There are so oh my God. many continuity errors. It's sunny. It's snowing. There are clouds. <laughs> yeah. There's smoke. Like, it just doesn't matter, though. My favorite one, there is a section where Russell Crowe is covered in, like, the wolf pelts, and he's talking to somebody, and they're inside a tent, and then b- behind them in the background, you can see the opening to the tent. If you watch, not even that closely, because once you know it's there, you can't unsee it. There is a cameraman or crew member in blue jeans and a parka that just walks mm-hmm. <laughs> right through the back of the shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And it makes the final cut. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to worry about that because that's not where you're looking. Uh, He's not wrong. Yeah. You weren't looking at that. Because you're looking at the incredible production, which was enormous. For these opening scenes, they had 1,750 extras. They had 120 horses, and they had built real siege equipment. Those catapults that you see, 
are real. So for these opening sequences, young Joaquin Phoenix, he's 25. Also, this is the first film, big film that he was doing after the death of his brother, River. Mm. Uh, he was so nervous to be acting across from Russell Crowe, and in particular Richard Harris, that he suffered anxiety attacks. At one point, he apparently asked Russell Crowe to beat him up before their scenes to get him into character. And Russell Crowe was very weirded out by this and went to <laughs> Harris for advice. And Richard Harris was like, get the boy pissed, apparently. So Russell Crowe got... As in drunk? Yeah, got Joaquin yeah. Phoenix drunk before some of their initial scenes to help calm his nerves. So some in some of the Aww. takes, he's actually drunk. And despite this, Phoenix actually fainted after an intense take during the scene where he killed his father. Now, unfortunately, after wrapping in England, which took three to four weeks, the production had run into an unusual problem. They didn't have any more pages of script to shoot that were locked. Uh-oh. So here's Russell Crowe talking about the script situation. And I read the script, and it was it was actually it was substantially underdone, and even the character didn't you know wasn't existent on the pages. I mean, we actually started shooting with about 32 pages, went through them in the first couple of weeks. Here was a situation where we got to Morocco with a crew of 200 and a cast of 100 or whatever, you know, and I didn't have anything to learn. I actually didn't know what the scenes were going to be. We had you know I think one American writer working on it, one English writer working on it, and of course a group of producers who are also adding their ideas, and then. Ridley himself, and then on the occasion where Ridley would say, look, this is the structure for it, what are you going to say in that? So then I'd be doing my own stuff as well. I mean, this is how things like Strength and Honor came up. This is how things like At My Signal Unleash Hell came up, you know? Um, The name, Maximus Decimus Meridius, it just flowed well. Where did and it I'd come had from? Ten, from? Was, well, was that from my, you? My imagination. I'd had ten other thing, you know, brighter semi names, which I just didn't think had that kind of <laughs> groove to it, you know. <laughs> so, adding, of course, to the difficulty with all of this is that Crow is extremely dissatisfied with all of his dialogue. He famously refuses to say perhaps the most famous line from the film: "In this life or the next, I will have my vengeance." Uh, he said, it's stupid. It sounds arch. I don't know how to play it. I'm not going to do it until it, I, finally Ridley Scott just said, just fucking say it. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that take is the take that's in the movie when he hey, finally, well, uh, he was wrong on that it. one. It's a great line. It's a great line <laughs> because he delivers it well too, though, to be fair, as he said, strength and honor was in Latin, the saying from one of Russell Crowe's high schools that he attended back in Australia. So he was like talking to Ridley Scott and he was like, my character just says goodbye to a bunch of soldiers in the scene. Could I say something different? And Ridley's like smoking a cigar. And he's like, well, what, what are you thinking? And then Russell Crowe's like, well, there was this Latin phrase for my school and he says it in Latin. And then Ridley Scott goes, what's that mean? And he goes, strength and honor. And he goes, say that. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and so that's how strength and honor went into the story. Um, wow. And Crow wasn't the only cast member that was given input on the script. Both Connie Nielsen and Jamon Hunsu gave feedback on their characters and their dialogue that was incorporated into the story. Lizzie just yeah. informed me, to all of you listeners out there, that I've been pronouncing <laughs> Jamon Hunsu's name wrong uh, <laughs> for 15 years. Uh, and I'm a big fan of his. So apologies to Jamon. You're a great actor and I should have learned how to pronounce your name prior to doing this podcast. But I've learned now. His feedback was also incorporated into the script. Ridley Scott was so receptive of input from his actors that one performer, and I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong too, comedian Omar Jalili, he's also in The Mummy, and he's hilarious. Oh, he's yeah. the guy that comes up when we meet Proximo, and he Oliver Reed grabs his balls, and then he sells Oliver Reed Maximus, effectively. 
Uh, he wrote in a later piece for The Guardian that Ridley Scott actually provided no direction to them at all. Omar once asked Ridley Scott about this, and Ridley Scott <laughs> responded with a cigar in his mouth. He all Everyone, whenever they describe him, they're like, he always has a cigar in his mouth. <laughs> and he's always like, if you're in a Ridley Scott film, you don't need direction. But I think he was focused on finishing their days, because four months to shoot this whole movie is not that much time. No, that's surprisingly short. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. <laughs> so the production moved to Malta after a few weeks in Morocco for the Rome set scenes where the Colosseum replica had been built. In addition to those construction costs, there were over 3,000 extras. The production made 10,000 costumes, 1,500 sets of armor. They brought in dozens of animals from hyenas to horses to monkeys. On top of this, Russell Crowe did a lot of his own stunts. He suffered a lot of injuries through the process, tore an Achilles tendon, permanently damaged one of his shoulders. He broke a bone in his foot, among other ailments. The cuts on his face after the first battle scene are real. His horse unexpectedly backed into a tree and he cut his face on some branches. Oh, God. You can actually see the stitches on his face um, during the close-ups in that scene. And there were certain production limitations that required further script changes. The famous tigers seen in the film were originally supposed to be a single rhinoceros that Maximus fights. <laughs> However, Ridley what? Scott, the producers like called and we were like, hey, can you get a white rhino to Malta? And they were no. like, sure. But uh, the problem is rhinos can't move backwards. So apparently it would just the resetting of a rhinoceros in a scene would be so they'd have to like run the circle around the whole Coliseum to reset every time. So they said no. And they asked their production team if they could do a cgi rhino and it was going to be millions of dollars and so also, they said it would look like trash it would look so bad so they're like great we'll just use tigers however perhaps the biggest thorn in russell crowe's side was not the script was not the injuries on set but in fact his co-star oliver reed well apparently that's to be expected <laughs> apparently just fucking hated russell crowe from the beginning it seems like they're just very similar. Yeah. Oliver Reed at one point even challenged Russell Crowe to a fist fight in front of the cast and crew. Don't take that because Oliver Reed will get you even if he's old. Yes, he would. Oliver Reed also, I should say, because I don't want him to seem like just an asshole, reportedly became incredibly close with Joaquin Phoenix, hmm. who looked up to him in a lot of ways. And he was very good friends with Richard Harris. For anybody that doesn't have sort of a reference point for Oliver Reed outside of Gladiator, he plays Bill Sykes in um, the movie musical Oliver, which is great. He's truly, truly, like, deeply scary in that, which is not something you expect from a musical, but boy, is he scary. Yes. 
Oliver Reed uh, had kind of been out of the film game for basically a decade. His last movie, big movie, had really been The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, which is the Terry Gilliam film, mm -hmm. that the flop that preceded the failed making of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and we'll do a separate episode on that. So Oliver Reed had famously accepted the role because, quote, he wanted to see some shows in London, not realizing he'd be filming in Malta and Morocco the entire time. He also, <laughs> he also had a provision in his contract that he couldn't be made to work past 5 p.m. So okay. that time was Reed's time. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know his earlier work, as, Liz, as uh, Lizzie mentioned, he actually was considered to take over the Bond franchise for Sean Connery at one point. It's too scary. <laughs> too scary. And as Lizzie mentioned, he was as known for his acting chops as mm -hmm. he was for his alcoholism. Yeah. So with three le weeks left in production, the producers and Ridley Scott get somber news. Oliver Reed, their proximo, has died. On May 2nd, 1999, Oliver Reed hunkers down in a local pub in Malta. He there crosses paths with a group of British sailors who are taking shore leave from the HMS Cumberland. Oh, no. According to witnesses, he drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, a half bottle of whiskey, and a few shots of cognac. What? He then proceeded to beat five of the sailors in arm wrestling matches. By the way, he's 61 years old. They're 20. And, and then like he's not in good shape. He suddenly stands up and collapses. He died on the way to the hospital of a heart attack. As I mentioned, he was 61 years old. So Ridley and his team are devastated for obvious reasons, and they're also completely screwed because they still had multiple key scenes with Proximo's character left to film. As scripted, the retired gladiator trotted out to fight Maximus at the end of the second act was supposed to be Proximo. Oh, no. And then the end of the film was to feature him, not Jaiman Hunsu's Juba, burying Maximus's statues in the sand at the Colosseum and walking away. So Proximo was the end of the movie. And so the issue with replacing him really wasn't so much financial as it was emotional. So the film's insurance policy actually would cover the shot, the cost of reshooting all of Proximo's actor. scenes with a new performer. It would cost apparently somewhere around 25 to $50 million to go back because they'd have to go back across three continents, rebuild all their sets. Yeah. And he's in repay scenes. Repay all the actors. Repay all the actors. Again. Yeah. So a $100 million film becomes a $150 million film. But really, the real hurdles were the fact that Ridley Scott and the entire team were exhausted. That it, it was such a struggle to get through this film for all of the expected reasons and the unexpected ones of the script and Russell Crowe, etc. And the idea of recreating all of these sets and scenes needed to reshoot all of this footage was truly terrifying. And on top of that, everybody loved the dailies of Reed and Crowe together. Yeah. Meanwhile... Post-production house The Mill, located in England, was hard at work figuring out how to use visual effects, which Hollywood was just starting to embrace. Remember, we had had Jurassic Park in 93, and mm -hmm. everything, the world of visual effects opened up. But they could be great results and terrible results. As we mentioned mm -hmm. on an earlier episode, Last Action Hero, Alien 3, roughly the same time as Jurassic Park. Some look good, some don't. So... The mill is working on how to recreate the Colosseum, composite tigers in, recreate Rome from above. They're pioneering techniques that would be used in epics for years to come, including motion capture and crowd generation. So Ridley Scott flies in screenwriter William Nicholson, and they set out to rewrite Proximo's arc in a way where they can repurpose 
existing footage of Oliver Reed onto an added scene that Nicholson would write, then rely on the mill to digitally composite Reed's face onto a body double. This becomes the scene where Reed ignores the Praetorian guards at the gates of Mm -hmm. the gladiator training section. He releases Maximus and is subsequently killed in his chambers. Wow, that's... Wait, that's entirely... Yes. Reconstructed after he's dead? Yeah, and if you watch it now in high definition, you can tell. But given that it was done in the year 2000, I think the effect looks remarkably good. In total, the mill recreated two additional minutes of screen time for Reed. That's a lot. And it costs $3.2 million to do, which if you think about $50 million for yeah. redoing the character, much less. The film is dedicated in Reed's memory. So at the very, very end of production, Ridley Scott still isn't satisfied with the story. He still feels like the themes of the film weren't strong enough. So while shooting in Tuscany and apparently locating location scouting for Hannibal, he found himself inspired by something he saw. And here's Ridley Scott. I knew I wanted to find a, a metaphor for mortality. I wouldn't discover the symbol of that until the very last two days of photography when I was in Tuscany. And I've got a double standing in his Roman leather armor and tunic. He's standing waist deep in wheat and he's actually stroking the corn, the wheat or the corn like that. And I was watching that and thinking, right, there's the opening shot of the movie. It also becomes the lead into the idea of heaven because that's where he will go eventually. And then you connect when he talks early on to Marx Aurelius who says, tell me about your home. He's actually describing the perfection that's in his own mind, which in a funny kind of way is heaven because that's where his family died. Hmm. So the kind of connective themes of the film weren't really discovered until the second to last day of filming. And actually that scene that Ridley Scott describes of Russell Crowe telling them of his his farm, that's actually written by Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe wrote his, his speech about his farm in Australia and Aww. wrote it into that scene. Uh, so Russell Crowe, that's a nice speech. He does deserve uh, some credit for that. Yeah. So the film enters a lengthy post-production process in the summer of 1999. Guys, The Mill did incredible work on this movie. Go watch it. It speaks for itself. You can also learn more about the VFX online. I'm not going to get into that here. Hans Zimmer was brought in to score the film and Lisa Girard lent her vocals to the project. It is not Enya on this score, despite what it sounds like. And so the producers, by the time they saw early cuts, realized somehow they had captured something magical with this movie. They set a May 1st, 2000 release, and then they showed the film to the historical consultant they'd hired on the project. (laughs) (laughs) He ran out of the screaming saying, it's a disaster, there are so many inaccuracies. He then listed the inaccuracies and asked that his name be removed from the film. And indeed, much to the chagrin of actual history teachers, not my high school one, Gladiator (laughs) is about as historically accurate as most science fiction. There are a lot of anachronisms and fictitious elements. If you want us to look at those, look at them online. We're not going to get into them here. Gladiator stormed the box office in the summer of 2000. It earned $500 million worldwide against its $100 million budget. It was the second highest grossing film of the year behind Mission Impossible 2. What? I, I How know. did that outperform Gladiator? Uh, it was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, including four Damn. of the big five, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture. Didn't get Best Actress because there's literally one female speaking part in the whole movie. Correct. 
Joaquin Phoenix was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, John Matheson for Best Cinematography. It was Ridley Scott's first nomination since Thelma and Louise nearly a decade earlier. We should also note that Ridley Scott opted not to take a producer credit on the film, despite his having done so on the previous four films that he directed. In a later interview, he said the movie already had a bunch of producers on it and he didn't want to glom on. So in the end, Russell Crowe wins for Best Actor. He beat out Tom Hanks, for example, in Castaway. It was a bit of a surprise win. Mm. John Matheson won for Cinematography. The folks at The Mill won for Special Effects, Visual Effects. Mm -hmm. Pietro Scalia won for Editing, Arthur Max for Production Design. And of course, producers Douglas Wick, Walter Parks, along with EP and writer John Franzoni, took home a statuette for Best Picture. Ridley Scott, as they ran up to the stage, went, God damn it, I should have taken a producing credit on this project. <laughs> oh, no. And if you look at his filmography, he has never not taken a producing credit since that yeah. movie. Out of curiosity, do you know who beat Joaquin Phoenix for supporting actor? Because he's the one that, like, his performance is so insane. Oh, it was Traffic, Benicio Del Toro. Eh. Russell Crowe, of course, would go on to have the most illustrious and productive decade of his career, a stretch highlighted by Beautiful Mind, Cinderella Man, and capped off with 310 to Yuma in 2007. He's had a dip since, but like The Nice Guys was pretty good a couple years ago. Scott's career has been up and down in the decades since, but he continues to work at a prolific rate with no signs of slowing down, even though he is 83 years old now. Oh my God. And he looks great, and he's crushing it. Go Ridley Scott. And of course, Lizzie, to end this episode, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the speculation around a long gestating prequel or sequel to Gladiator. Now, folks, oh, no. if you don't want to hear this, you can check out now. This is that, that concludes our section on actual Gladiator, but I have to talk about Gladiator 2 because the script was written and it's amazing. Ridley Scott's decision to kill Maximus at the end of Gladiator was controversial for a number of reasons, not the least of which because it ruled out a sequel. Right. So if you remember in the first drafts that DreamWorks read, he lives. So Ridley Scott wanted to do a sequel after the success of the first film. He planned on hiring screenwriter John Logan to pen a follow-up that would be set in Rome in the years after Maximus's death. It would feature neither Russell Crowe, and really not be about gladiators and serve more as a spiritual successor to Gladiator than an actual direct sequel. Okay. Now, unhappy at the notion that a sequel would be made without him, Russell Crowe reportedly hired Australian musician Nick Cave to write a sequel to Gladiator. What? Called Gladiator 2. <laughs> and <laughs> so Nick Cave... Who is great. Like, go listen to his music. He's amazing and an amazing He's composer. Great. And he had written one film before this, and I can't remember what it was called. He took the job with one question. Didn't you die in Gladiator 1? To which Russell Crowe <laughs> responded, yeah, you sort that out, mate. So, without further ado, this is the plot of Nick Cave's Gladiator 2. Moments after the events of Gladiator, our hero Maximus wakes up in the afterlife. However, to his horror... This isn't the Elysium that he imagined during Gladiator 1. No, this is a rain-soaked netherworld at the edges of a black ocean where terrified people huddle together in purgatorial state. With the help of a ghost guide, Mordecai, Maximus heads to an old temple where he communes with Jupiter, Mars, and five other long-dead Roman gods. Jupiter explains that Hephaestus, who, by the way, is technically, that's the Greek name for the god, uh, I guess, has yeah. betrayed them, and that if Maximus kills him, they will reunite Maximus in the golden wheat fields of Elysium with his wife and son. So it's like, okay, it's like the afterlife version of uh, 
of Gladiator. No. So Maximus actually quickly finds <laughs> Hephaestus, kills him, but is then transported back to Rome 10 years after the events of Gladiator, where he sets out to find his son Marius, who in this world is somehow alive and wasn't like crucified and burned like in the first movie. Yeah, he's extra dead in Gladiator. Well, Maximus finds him. He also teams up with some secret underground Christians and Juba, Chaimun Hunsu from the first film, and they go head-to-head against the new villain of the story, which is Commodus's nephew, Lucius, who grew up to become evil oh. in this timeline. The action also okay. now features a flooded coliseum filled with 100 alligators. Yeah. But then the movie keeps going. And this final battle stretches on for 20 pages or so as we watch Maximus, now immortal, stride into battle across history, participating in the Crusades, World War II, the Vietnam War, and finally raiding the Pentagon. So it's the opening credits of... X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yes, exactly. Yes, one of my favorite really bad uh, X-Men movies. So good. It's it's amazing. Russell Crowe read the script... He called up Nick Cave, and apparently all he said was, don't like it, mate. <laughs> and that was the end of Gladiator 2. All right. Apparently, there is still a prequel in the works. Who knows if that will ever come out? Of course, to wrap things up, we need to talk about what went right. And there's a lot to choose from for this movie. Mm-hmm. So, Lizzie, spinach in mouth, tell me, in your opinion, what went right? With Ridley Scott's Gladiator. I've got to go with the casting of Joaquin Phoenix. While I think that Jude Law could have been really good... I don't think you can beat Joaquin, and I'm so glad that this kind of launched. I mean, I know he'd done some other stuff as an adult prior to this, but this really was his big launch pad into Hollywood, and he's just, he is so good in this movie and continues to be so good. Um, So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I have to say, Russell Crowe, writer slash improviser. That is really impressive. A lot of the great lines in this movie seem to have come from him and by the admission of the writers as well. Uh, I got to give him credit. And he also, and he plays them to perfection. So good on Russell Crowe. And then obviously Ridley Scott's non-direction of actors, I guess, (laughs) just works. Uh, Or at least it worked in this movie. That does it for Gladiator, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Go give the movie a watch. Send us your recommendations. Lizzie, anything else? No, I want to go eat more spinach. Send us your recommendations. Eat more spinach. (laughs) Stay safe. Stay healthy. Yeah. We'll talk to you guys next week. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. 